It seems that you can't watch the news or go online these days without encountering stories related to matters of gender and sexual identity. The conversations on these matters are progressing into unmarked territory that can leave parents and youth workers confused and even paralyzed in terms of how to respond. In recent weeks, a new study has emerged that has opened the door for conversations about what's being called rapid onset gender dysphoria, something that's becoming more and more prevalent in the teen population. We'll be talking about our need for knowledge, careful posturing, and a distinctively Christian approach to issues regarding gender and sexuality on this edition of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. So I had the opportunity to talk to a group of middle schoolers the other day in a school gym about marketing and how to think about marketing, and that got me thinking about a commercial I saw over the weekend that I I think I texted it to you guys, didn't I? Yep. I texted you guys that commercial? You did. I thought I it was so. so so appropriate for everything we do as we talk about youth culture. Jason, our work with you with the Sexual Integrity, Integrity Initiative. Uh, and and then our conversations about sports and what constitutes a sport and what does not constitute a sport, right? So it was – did you guys watch the commercial I sent? Yes, I did. It was funny. Okay. Yeah. You thought it was funny? Do you think it was uh, – It was oh, funny. Oh, we should tell sure. people what it was. It was the doctor – Sure, you should. What is, it, what is that uh, commercial series they're doing now? It's Dr. Pepper. FanDuel. Isn't no, not FanDuel. FanDuel. Fan, FanVille. Fans, Fanville, Fanville, okay. You know, this is where I feel like I can't trust Jason for any good answers to factual questions because he's like Fanduel. Yeah, Isn't that start- like a gambling site or something? Uh, it's or Daily Fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, right. Okay, yeah, Fanduel. So what is it, Chris? It's fans. Well, I'm trying to throw you off. See, I'm messing I'm it up here. Do, Dr. You're about ready I- to. I think You're it, about ready to make fun of one of my favorite sports, but go on. Because you watch the Pepper thing is Fansville. Fansville, look it up, Chris. Check it out while we're sitting sitting here and trying to figure out what in the world we're talking yeah. about. Welcome to Fansville. So there's this commercial, and I'm sure people have seen it. I guess we'll link to it on the podcast page where this concerned set of parents, a mom and a dad, they're all decked out in their Saturday best for college football, and they walk into their son's room and they they – basically confront him because they found a magazine under his mattress and it was what was it jason it was a soccer magazine yeah so they called him out on that yeah how in the world you know and it's (laughs) immediately when i saw it i thought okay number one the whole concept of this is brilliant you know when you talk about trying to catch people's attention and and that whole thing but then when they threw soccer under the bus. I just thought that was brilliant. I mean, I actually started to laugh out loud just over that. Thinking yeah, of you. Funny. I mean, thinking you have to you. set the stage too because they were football fans. Right. They, they were decked out in their football gear and they have the magazine. But they also threw lacrosse 
<laughs> yeah, that was bus because they said that soccer was the gateway drug to lacrosse. Yeah, so, I, I didn't. Did I didn't agree <laughs> with that, that part, but it, I'm going to argue hey. that. I'm going to argue that because with lacrosse you use everything, and it's brutal. You know, I mean, I, I'm my not boys denying played... that, but but if that if soccer is the gateway drug to lacrosse and it's a step down. Well then, then you you need to give more credibility to the game of soccer. Because well, but soccer, what, but what we're saying is we both Walt and I both disagree with that. Yeah, balance. that's where the whole thing came undone. Yeah, the commercial, that's where the, the commercial whole went thing downhill. Came undone. You either accept all of it or none of it. You Do you know what they call lacrosse? It. Do you know this? See, this is our sports right. argument continuing. You know what yeah. they call lacrosse? You know, you know how they describe it as a sport. The sport on the East Coast that no one on the West Coast plays. That's not true because you're up <laughs> in Washington, and I know one of my son's college teammates has been coaching up there for years in the Yes, Seattle it is area. growing. It is by no means what it is on the East Coast, though. Yeah, yeah. They call it the fast. But almost all of those lacrosse players, they play soccer. No, 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 no. <laughs> they will tell you that the best lacrosse players are football players. Now, listen, they call it the fastest sport on two feet. Fastest sport on two feet, as opposed well, to. Well, what's the fastest sport on four feet? Well, that's the, what I want to know. No, as opposed to the sport that only uses two feet. Oh, okay. That's soccer. So, you, yeah. So, I, I would say to our listeners, if you don't know anything about lacrosse, look at some videos of some NCAA lacrosse. It's a it's a great game. It's You know, it's also the fastest-growing sport in uh, in the country right now. There's another one that's, fit, that's, like, close to it. I think we've talked about that once before. Do you know what that is? Fast-growing sport? I, sh- I should remember this because we did talk about it, and I don't remember the answer. I think I'm pulling this out right. It's, it's bowling. Ah, bowling is a fast-growing sport among teenagers. Yeah. How about that? Oh, I mean, sure. Our, our fact-checker yeah. will verify that. Yeah, yeah. check that yeah, out, too. I, so. <laughs> well, we love those commercials. By the way, that whole thing that I did with him, and I'll just pass this on. We have a tool on our website called the Simple 7 or advertising questions will include include a link to that and we just say you know if jesus is the lord of all of life and kids are seeing between four and ten thousand marketing messages a day shouldn't we get them thinking christianly about these things so it's a matter of discipleship and youth pastors parents you need to be talking to your kids about managing the marketing rather than having the marketing manage them because it's it's about much more than selling product it's about selling a worldview so I just had to bring that up right at the top, Jason. Um, That's fine. You yeah. know, and celebration of bullying being one of the fastest growing sports among teens. What well, did you just think say? That you and I. What did you he and say? I? What did he no, say? Fastest, bo- he said bowling. Bowling. Oh, I thought he, he said. said I thought he said bullying uh, as no, the fastest not, growing not sport bullying. among teens. Okay, bowling. bowling. Okay. Uh, Thanks and, for translating. And celebration it, of it being the fastest growing sport. I say that when we go to the National Youth Workers Convention yeah. in St. Louis, yeah. you and I have a game of bowling. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah. But we you and have see and see which of us has the better score. That what's would your, be What's your top score ever? Uh, it's probably in the 200s. I, I want to hear probably. You know, like I could say mine's probably 320. <laughs> I don't know. I I guarantee I, yours is not three twenty. <laughs> wow, you you, I, look, you must have been playing a different yeah, game. Yeah, I was. I threw that out there just to see if you were listening. A that and B, a if you know what you're set. talking about. So that was I was baiting you there. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I don't know that I'm going to go bowling out there. Why? But, 
Well, I mean, we'll I've got other things to go do. Bowling. I would ra- I would rather spend time with youth workers than in a bowling alley with you. Why can't you go to a bowling alley with youth workers as they watch you and I compete for the best score? Well, that might be good. Okay. <laughs> when was the last time you bowled? Oh, I have no idea. Yeah, I I, I would say the same thing. It's been ago. years yeah. for me. And you know, we ha- right here where where our studio is in our office. Right around the corner is the bowling alley, and I got to tell you, I have not been in there for years. I mean, literally, oh. it's a stone's throw from my house yeah. and from the office. Right around the corner. So yeah, we just don't go, and that's not well, yeah, that's not a statement on bowling. But I go now and then. Yeah, I enjoy it. Do you have your own bowling ball, Jason? I I appreciate how you did not want to make a statement about bowling, but soccer's fair game. <laughs> you don't want to throw bowling under the bus. <laughs> but you're totally fine doing it to soccer. <laughs> you didn't hear my question. Do you have your own bowling ball? Do you have a personalized? I, yeah, of bowling course ball? not. Okay. Did you right, hear my right. answer? I haven't bowled in several years. If I invested well, that in a bowling it. ball, if I invested in a bowling ball, I I, I would be bowling. I'm not going to waste money. <laughs> okay. First off, I don't know that a bowling ball could be considered an investment. Like, how is that going to make you hey, money? Hey, you're right? good so at that's it, a it can be. Right, okay. So for the 10 people who can do that, then it's an investment. I get it. But just because you haven't bowled in years doesn't mean you don't have a bowling ball. I'm going to get you one. <laughs> I don't have one. We'll have to, uh, I, I don't we'll have, have to one pick myself, one up at an auction. Sure. There's yeah. often bowling balls at auctions. Guess what? Okay. If Guess you give what? me a bowling you ball, go, I already you know, know my no. gift to you. you know? Yeah, I bought... I bought uh, a group of stuff at an auction. There were a couple of things I wanted to get a few <laughs> couple of months ago, and they made me take the whole the whole box, and there was a bowling ball in there. I I hope it's an eight pound ball and it's pink and we'll, and uh, yeah, I have no wrap idea. It, wrap it in a bow. Yeah, I have no idea what Please I'm going to do with that thing. Engraved. Well, I I had no I would, idea. I, would like my name I think there's a girl's name engraved in it already. And I got this thing sitting in my garage and you know Lisa's like, "What? What in the world?" You know, I actually thought about just rolling it out the driveway and letting it go down the street and see where it ends up. I don't know. Oh my gosh. But yeah. Yeah, huh. so yeah. Hey, listen. Uh I want to give a shout out here because we've developed some some followers for the podcast. And we hear from them from time to time. And I just have to shout out to one of the guys who he puts, you know, messages up on Facebook that I see. And he tweets. And I don't know what else he does. He might might actually have one of those wraps on his car, you know, with <laughs> a might. Youth Culture Matters logo. But our friend Eric Christensen, who lives in Wisconsin, he's out in Amory, Wisconsin, and he works at a Lutheran church out there has been a fan of the podcast and has done so much to spread the word. So, you know, when we see that, it just I said to Chris this morning, you know, I got to say thank you to Eric because Eric's one of our biggest fans, and I love the way that, you know, he listens and he responds and then he tells other people about what we're talking about. So, Eric, shout out to you and thank you. Yeah, we yes, really appreciate definitely. that. I, I do yeah. think I want to throw one more shout out out there just because it, it fits. We, we should throw a shout out to our former colleague, Doug West, who, oh yeah. Who we the probably the last time you went bowling was probably with him. We went as a staff. He Doug West used to be on staff. He's the one who started many, many years ago our E update. That's right. And he has yeah. bowled uh multiple perfect three hundred games before. Yeah, I'm gonna say this for Doug, uh, I had totally forgotten about this. Bowling is an investment. And Absolutely. I don't know, did we ever go bowling with him? To we see did. Him? In yeah. fact, 
uh, you know, this is a guy who I'm, I'm like a, I'm lucky to break a hundred and, and here's a guy who's bold 300. One of the games I had a chance on the 10th frame to beat him and I choked. So I had my chance to beat a, uh, you know, a perfect 300 bowler. Uh, and I, and I choked in the 10th. That frame. would have been interesting to watch. Both wow. your reaction and his reaction. To oh, that. it would just been it would it's just but it would have been fun, obviously, to beat him. But uh, yep, I didn't pull it off. But a shout out to Doug. We love Doug, and he did uh, some great stuff here while yeah. he was on staff. Yeah, if I yeah, Doug Doug was phenomenal. Doug was a fen- yeah, I mean, he still is a phenomenal bowler. So so thanks, Doug, and he's serious thanks, about it, Eric. Yeah, yeah. I th- I actually think didn't Doug like make a move towards becoming a professional bowler at one point? I remember him talking about that but he um, certainly is recall. good enough yeah yeah so yeah good old doug <laughs> doug's and doug has engaged in so many different sports things you know he did the phillies fantasy baseball camp um he's taken great photos huh? at games he did a phillies fantasy camp what what is a Phillies fantasy camp like? What what do you do? You you go, are you go play, you virtually meet all the players? Yeah. See, yeah. The, well, see, let me say this because and... we're Phillies fans, right? Uh, Cubs fans don't, they don't yeah, have this. We're, I don't say we're. I'm not. A Come Phillies. on, play no, along. On. You're a Yankees. Well, I'm the not, Yankees not, Yankees have a fantasy yes, camp, they right? Do. Yeah, they do. The Cubs don't because nobody fantasizes about being a Chicago Cub. So what they do with this is they. What, I'm waiting for your reaction, Jason. That hold <laughs> no, hold it for a He knows what better. You're say. No, so it's this it's this thing where you go away for like a week, and he went down to Clearwater, and I believe it was after or just prior to spring training, so maybe it's in January, and they have a bunch of the old timers down there, so you work out with them, you get a uniform, and then you are put on teams, and you're managed by former players. Managed and coached by former players, and you actually play games. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's a great thing. I would love to do it. I think it'd be a lot of fun. So of course I'm getting. Oh great! Here we go. I don't know. That what just was it about? Sound fun. Playing baseball. <laughs> like, playing baseball. Watching watching some of my heroes from you know the past who played baseball for the Cubs, now coaching me, who really has limited talent when it comes to baseball. <laughs> like, I, well, there you I go. don't know. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound exactly. That's a difference the, between the you thing. and us, Jason, that limited yeah. talent thing. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will say this, and I may have talked about this in the past, but back in 2001, so, have I talked about this? A local I don't know guy, if you told it on Local the guy recruited me yep. to play on a team, the local NPR uh station network here put a team together to play in one of these fantasy things and a couple hours from here out in the field i mean the middle of nowhere there's one of these fields of field of dreams you know had a fence you know and advertisements on the fence it had clubhouses dugouts the whole bit so we i said all right i'll play wood bats so i go out and um I was a catcher because that's what I played when I was a kid. And, and I'm, I'm just going to say that in 2001, I was in a little bit different shape than I am now. I hadn't been beaten up or had any bike accidents or anything. And uh, so I'm, I'm on this team. And the, the the so when they have these games on the weekend, they bring in a baseball star, a baseball celebrity from the past. And the one they brought in for our game was Gaylord Perry. So wow. Gaylord, yeah, Gaylord that's Perry. Cool. I mean, yeah, so yeah. – I'm all excited to see him. I have 
five baseballs I take to have my autograph, you know, because I'm going to give them away to people and such. And and when we get there, I, I can't find him, but he's actually there because he looks nothing like he used to look. <laughs> and unfortunately, I think baseball beat him up a little bit, and he spent a lot of his time sitting in a chair. And then when he umpired, he umpired, and he stood behind the pitcher. Actually, he didn't stand. He sat on a five-gallon, like a Home Depot bucket behind the pitcher and uh, called balls and strikes indiscriminately, I might add, because uh, I was catching, and I was able to be on the receiving end of that. And, you know, so it was fun. Yeah, it was a great, it was a great time. And it was a wide variety of uh, players. So, yeah, there were some funny stories from that. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, we we have to change the subject because um, the subject of this podcast is not mock Jason. That's not what we're doing. We'll save that for another time. We just – We'll save that for every other time. Yeah, yeah, that's the the greatness of soccer. Yeah, I, I don't know. And my apologies to all the soccer fans out there. I don't know. It's just something Chris and I have to we have to figure this out. But we do want to have a serious conversation because it, this over the course of the last few weeks, and we've talked about this offline, and that's why we've decided to have this conversation online. There's been a lot happening in our world. You know, this rate of change regarding sexuality and gender has really seemed to pick up steam, and there's been a lot in the news lately regarding what's happening with the whole transgender movement and especially as it relates to kids. So when we come back, we're going to talk about and and I hope in a sensitive, caring, loving way that reflects, uh, you know, that reflects grace and truth. That's what we want to do here in these conversations about sexuality, grace and truth as we understand them and we've come to know them in the scriptures. We want to talk a bit about the whole transgender movement and some of the things that are happening there. Just have a discussion about that. And and I think we need to say that as we have this discussion, we are taking a posture where we want to be faithful to the Scriptures. We have a strong sense of what the, the, the biblical order and design is for the gift of sexuality and gender, but we also want to be sensitive to some of the struggles that individuals are having and the need for the church to respond to that in ways that truly reflect uh, the heart and the mind of Christ and minister to people in ways that will advance their flourishing. So keep that in mind as we come back to chat about this. Stick with us. We'll be right back after the break. In an effort to help you help the kids you know and love navigate their emerging sexuality to the glory of God, we've launched a sexual integrity initiative here at CPYU. Thanks to a generous grant from a company called DAS, you can access our Sexual Integrity Initiative and a growing number of resources for free by visiting the website at sexualintegrityinitiative.com. Welcome back to Youth Culture Matters. Thanks for listening. So we're going to dive into a conversation. Uh, it's a conversation that, that Walt, you and I have been having offline um, for quite a long time, but as more and more uh, articles, books, research comes up, uh, we just thought it'd be great for us to have this conversation here on the podcast, and specifically around transgender. Uh, it's It's been something that, that uh, is having an impact, and it's a part of our culture, and we've got to have these conversations. One of the books you recently mentioned 
um, and I'm forgetting the title, but you uh, just finished reading it. Uh, it comes just on the heels of some other research that's coming out. So can maybe talk yeah. a little bit about the book and some of the things that you've noticed in the news? Right, right. So that way we can dive into some conversation around this. Yeah, so let me preface this by saying that, you know, sometimes people are critical and surprised by the yeah. kinds of things that I'm reading and listening to and watching. And I really believe that the posture we need to have on any issue where we believe the gospel speaks to it and the cultural narrative may be moving in a direction that is opposed to the biblical narrative or the gospel narrative, I think we need to work to listen and understand. So those are two big words that I use all the time. We're, we're, you know, listen first and work to understand because we're very quick to speak. And, you know, Proverbs, the scriptures push us away from that. So all that to say, uh, I went and found this book. I, I forget how I stumbled across it, but it's young adult fiction, youth fiction, I guess. And it's a book written by a guy named Jeff Garvin. And he's been an actor. He's been the front man in a band. This is his first book. But it's titled Symptoms of Being Human. And the subtitle is Boy or Girl? Question mark. Yes, period. Boy or Girl? Question mark. Yes, period. And so it's a story told in the first person of a teenager named Riley Cavanaugh. I have no idea after reading the book, if Riley Kavanaugh is birth gender, we'll, we'll use that, you know, the, the, in terms of uh, genitalia. I don't know if Riley Kavanaugh is male or female in terms of biological gender. But Riley Kavanaugh, in a move from a transfer from a Catholic high school to a public school, now faces new friends, and there's some bullying, there's some acceptance, there's some curiosity for this girl who identifies as gender fluid. So what the book does, and I, I get it, it's written by a male and an adult male, but what Jeff Garvin tries to do is take us into the mind of a teenager who is gender fluid and what those struggles are like. And I thought it was a rather eye-opening book, and I think with most fiction that's written in the first person, the story is told in a way that, that certainly draws you in and, and develops some sympathy and empathy uh, for Riley, and, you know, you're feeling bad for Riley. And I think in some ways that's manipulative. I think that, and I'm just going to be honest, I think we can communicate in ways that tug at the emotions and that that influence people and that happens i understand that that happens and i think it, this can be that that strategy can be manipulative in a variety of ways but i think that this book will function to develop some of that sensitivity and uh, sympathy in kids i think kids who struggle with gender identity or gender fluidity will be drawn to this but some of the issues i i was writing as i read this and by the way the book I said this to you, Jason, when we were offline. I, I felt like the book just ended too abruptly, and it was too much of a happily ever after ending. I don't think things are this clean and clear uh, with the, you know a coming out and you know just how all this acceptance and this is great and all. So it's very affirming. Uh, but things like sexuality, gender, pluralism, diversity, family, the family struggle, friendships, bullying, cliques, developmental issues, anxiety, cutting. Um, 
And I think the message is definitely one of affirmation, one that's meant to engender sympathy, and you know, one that uh, I think through the book offers counsels to to kids who may be struggling along with this and looking for a place to land. So I think in many ways it's a powerful book, and for me it was good to read it because this is not my experience, and I want to know the experience of someone who's struggling with that. Yeah, yeah, that's really that's really important. I think that that as we dive into these conversations, we have to be aware and uh, be willing to listen before we can engage. And yeah, I and it's both sides. You know, listen, to, I yeah. think, you know, as followers of Christ, I want to immerse myself in God's Word, and Most I want definitely. to tap into the best thinking that's being done that's faithful to God's Word. And, and But I'm going to read things that are open and affirming from a non-sectarian view, viewpoint, because I want to understand that, and I'm going yeah. to read things that come from a sectarian viewpoint because we're seeing more and more of that in our Christian community where, you know, with people like Justin Lee and Matthew Vines where there's exegetical and hermeneutical methodology that's leading people to be open and affirming. And I don't agree with that. I don't think the Scriptures teach that. I think the Scriptures clearly move us in another direction. But I want to understand what they're thinking. I want to hear their arguments. I want to, you know, evaluate their arguments and you know, if I'm going to be convinced, convince me. But at this, you know, I just. But it's much like you're saying, being able to be. You, you can't speak uh, about it unless you know what's right. being said. Right. And so right. it's so very important for us to be able to understand, because especially in Justin Lee's case with Torn, that there is a story that is a part of that book that leads to then uh, some exegesis. But the story, I think, is really important. We we need to be able to engage, listen, uh, so that way we can better. Uh, have uh, an ability and to enter into these conversations. Yeah. You know, there's another book I'll mention here that is now at the top of my pile, and I did not go out and get this book. This book came to me, and I don't know how they got a hold of me, but sometimes we get publishers who will ship us books because they think we'll review them or we'll look at them. And this one comes from New York University uh, Press, and it's written by someone who identifies as transgendered, prefers to be called, I believe, they, you know, that pronoun, mm-hmm. uh, Ann Travers, who's a professor up in Canada. And the book is titled The Transgeneration, How Trans Kids and Their Parents Are Creating a Gender Revolution. And that's another one I'm reading. You know, I'll just be yeah. very open and upfront about it that, yeah. you know, if people who are open and affirming, and even if Ann Travers happens to hear this, you know, I want to hear what these folks have to say. I want to be able to enter into dialogue that's, you know, dialogue that will bring honor and glory to God. I want to listen to people. I just, you know, I don't want to be a guy that shouts at people. Let me ask this. You you, you and I have also had some other conversations. You've brought up a couple of articles as well um, that you've been engaging. Um, and I, I, I think uh, for the purposes of this conversation, because there's also some research that we'll get to, but I want yeah. to hear about some of the articles that you've also engaged um, yeah. that we've talked about offline as well. Yeah, and again, I haven't gone seeking these things. They've just popped up in our news feeds over the last week or two. So, yeah. you know, like one would be the story of Jazz Jennings, who is this YouTube sensation, this teenager who's gained a lot of followers uh, through a reality television show who underwent... I'm going to pull the story up here, but who underwent uh, what what is called gender confirmation surgery. So born 
biologically male, but identifying as a female and living for all intents and purposes as a female for a good long time, now has gone through what is called gender confirmation surgery, where what Jazz feels the gender is, you know, is now, you know, being biologically, medically, uh, let's just say medically uh, manipulated, not biologically. So that's a big story right now, and a lot of kids are following that, and I think it's hitting big because they're getting ready for season five, uh, of what she what is her reality series called I Am Jazz, which will be returning to TLC, says here for fifth season. And when it does, audiences will see Jennings undergo the life changing operation. So, there you have a pop culture icon who has gained traction in the youth culture, which is important because that's going to come back to another little bit of research that came out that's quite controversial here in the last couple of weeks, which we'll refer to shortly. Um, in addition, uh, there's a story that's out now about our government and the organization that handles, let me pull it up here so I know I'm quoting this correctly, the Department of State, which handles uh, passports. There's some controversy now about some changes they've made. From They've removed the page on their website called Gender Designation Change, which had been up since 2010, replaced it with a new page called Change of Sex Marker. And you can read about that. Rolling Stone actually threw an article up on this, which was interesting to read. And we'll, we'll include a post to that. We'll have Chris do that on the page for the podcast so you can read about what's happening there. And then uh, let me see here. I've got, I've got a whole pile of stuff, Jason. I mean, it's uh, – well, oh, Let me, well, let me can, say this too while you Oh, while yeah, go looking, ahead. Go ahead. I, I think this is important. Just going back to even uh, Jazz Jennings' story, you had mentioned – uh, gender confirmation surgery. Um, historically, we've called that gender reassignment, uh, but now um, just I think it's these when we change words, it's a sign of the change in the culture. And so we've moved from reassignment, uh, which I think uh, many would probably argue is politically incorrect. And so gender confirmation is really gender reassignment. They just now use those terms instead of the other. And so it is something to be aware of because that, that has changed. And I know some oh, people yeah. have a question on that. And so just yeah. making sure people understand what we're talking about. I think that's a great point you make just about cultural change and how our language changes with that. And there are certain things that we used to say that we can't say anymore. We're not supposed yeah. to say. And I know even in Canada, my friends up there are telling me that this is becoming a real issue because some of these things are being legislated. And you can get in some trouble for using the wrong words. And I think we're not far from that here. Even if even if your stance on this is different from the one that's being uh, overwhelmingly taught right now and reflected in the cultural narrative. Uh, by the way, you know, talking about the, the gender surgery and, and Jazz Jennings, the October edition of Pediatrics, which is a journal, the official journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics, has an article in there, and you can find it online. Uh, it was published online in mid-September, and it's a study called, or actually it's a policy statement on ensuring comprehensive care and support for transgender and gender-diverse children and adolescents. And it, this was put together by... Uh, pediatricians who are part of the Committee on Psychosocial Aspects of Child and Family Health, the Committee on Adolescence, and the Section on Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender 
health and wellness. I know you probably didn't get all that, but you can see that when you when you look at the study and read the study. And basically what they're trying to do is they feel that this population has been traditionally underserved and they're working to give more formal training to standard standardized treatment options and then come up with some you know some ethical borders and boundaries that pediatricians will be able to work from because it you know it's my it's it's mind-boggling to them as well and depending on your perspective on this or your foundational worldview as a physician it's going to make a difference and this, this is why these things are important to be aware of and to think about uh, just two more let me give you two more here yeah one was an article i read in the latest edition the october 2018 edition of first things magazine I posted this on my Facebook page. I put it on the CPYU Facebook page, and I tweeted this out as well. And this was an article by Robert Benny, B-E-N-N-E. It's titled ELCA Hits Bottom. It's about the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, of which he was a part. And the story he tells is one that's very similar for me, the journey he took as a part of a mainline Protestant denomination that seemed to be moving more and more over the course of time into the open and affirming position to the point where it has become the official adopted position of the denomination, resulting in many, many people leaving and going elsewhere in an effort to be faithful to the Scriptures and feeling that they couldn't in good conscience conscience function under that system, that denominational system anymore. And the ELCA is part of that. Robert Benny left. However, he went back and revisited this last summer there uh, in the ELCA, their uh, conference, I can't remember what it's called, but it's a conference for teenagers, uh, their national gathering, I believe. It was held in Houston. It's called the ELCA Youth Gathering. It was held in Houston in late June. 31,000 uh, teenagers of high school age and the speakers that were put forward. And he basically reports on the fact that uh, the prime keynoter was Nadia Boltz Weber, who is. Uh, iconic in the, you know, she's a celebrity not only in the ELCA as a pastor, but progressive elites from NPR to the BBC love her and will interview her. And she basically worked, as Benny reports, to to debunk what we would call traditional biblical sexuality, what we would hold to here at CPYU, what we deal with, Jason, with our sexual integrity initiative, and then, why am I having a problem saying integrity today? Uh, but our Sexual <laughs> Integrity Initiative. And um, they also had some other speakers speak to this, including a mom who was the who is the wife of an ELCA pastor, and she brought her transgendered, 11-year-old transgendered child who spoke to the, uh, to the 31,000 students who were there. So, you know, I, look, kids are impressionable. And the two things that are happening, I tell youth workers all the time, in terms of development, two two tasks, developmental tasks that are that are probably the biggest and and most prominent. One is identity formation, and isn't this all about identity? Because we've made this an identity issue now. Primary identity is about sexuality. So answering the question, who am I, and then worldview formation, what do I believe? And so this yeah. is wrapped up in all of that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this just really moves us. You, you said you had two. Do you, do you have one other that you wanted to bring up? Uh, well, you know, we'll maybe point later. I, I just read this this morning, a great blog post from our friend Tim Geiger over at Harvest USA. We'll include a, a link to that where he 
had thoughts on the Revoice Conference, which was held recently. These are Christians who want to hold to traditional Orthodox biblical views on sexuality and theology who are same-sex attracted or in the LGBTQ community. And that conference took place, I believe, in St. Louis at the end of July. And Tim attended. And as many know, because Tim's been here, Tim has dealt over the course of his life with same-sex attraction and, and is now at, at the helm of a ministry that deals with sexual brokenness, Harvest USA, a ministry that I've grown to know and love, and they think deeply about these things theologically and biblically. And so Tim has what I thought are some very insightful responses to what happened at the Revoice Conference, some recommendations, and even some affirmations about some of what took place there. So don't think that it's just an article that's critical or blasting. I think he's asking some good things because, you know, look, as the cultural soup is the place where kids are swimming and it's influencing them, we have to realize that it's part of the soup that all of us swim in as well. And as parents and youth workers and followers of Christ, we always have to be conscious of what is what it is that's surrounding us and what it is that we're weaving our way through because without even knowing it, we breathe this air and we can mindlessly assume some of this. So it's yeah. important for us to, to track with that's this. That's good. Well, and that just leads us then uh, really uh, something that, that you and I have taken a look at over the last couple of days, which is a study out from Brown University that uh, looked at uh, the rapid onset of gender dysphoria. And so uh, maybe set the stage a little bit and then we can have some conversation. But what we're wanting to do is have a conversation around this because this is not just something that is a part of our culture, but most likely is something that we're seeing in the midst of our youth ministries uh, and maybe in our own homes. Yeah. So let me back up a minute, and when I yeah. read this study, which it was authored by Lisa Lippman, a researcher at Brown University, and by the way, the study is titled Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria in Adolescents and Young Adults, a Study of Parental Reports. So this is a, a kind of a launching into this issue of what she's calling rapid onset gender dysphoria. Before I talk about that, before you and I talk about that, let me just say that over the course of the last few years, I have from time to time talked about how the influence of the peer group is so powerful. And, you know, marketers know this. You were a marketer, right? So cool hunters and that sort of thing. You throw something into the peer group. You learn how to push buttons for teens, and hopefully they'll adopt whatever it is you know, in terms of your brand or your product that you're trying to sell, the same thing happens with notions about identity and notions about worldview, ideas, at the level of ideas. It's not just product, it's ideas. And, you know, these things can spread like wildfire very quickly. You know, it used to be 30, 40 years ago, before the advent of the Internet, that a trend would start you know, stereotypically on the West Coast, and it would take a couple of years to for the wind to blow it over here to the East Coast. That's no longer the case. With a peer group that is immersed, everybody, in the world of social media and the Internet and all the stuff that's out there, stuff has dropped now simultaneously. So when I would talk about that dynamic, two of the issues that have been prevalent in youth culture that I brought up that have been spread, I believe, by that, you know, uh, 
we call it uh, social contagion, okay? So you mm -hmm. think about the word contagious, you know, it just spreads virally. Uh, two of the things that have been a social contagion, thanks to the internet and then thanks to the peer group or peer contagion, one would be uh, cutting or self-injury. Because, you know, like 30 years ago, that was, even 20 years ago, I think it was by and large limited to those who were drawn to it because they were drawn to it, not because they heard about it. And then all of a sudden, now you've got all these kids who are doing this, some of them not even having what we would call the classical symptoms of someone or the classical life situations of someone that would, that would sort of set the stage for this, but they're doing it just because everybody else is doing it. And it becomes kind of a popular thing to do in their search for identity and and establishing a worldview. The other one, do you know what the other one would be? I mean, I'm just asking if you you guys, we, I mean, we've written about this. I'm not putting you on the spot here with a quiz. but <laughs> Other than the one we're talking about today, yeah. I'm assuming that I would say suicide. Well, that would be one too, so that's a third. Yeah, where that, you know, when you, when you look at uh, coping mechanisms, and I'm glad you brought that up, Chris, because I wasn't even mm -hmm. thinking of that. But you talk about coping uh, systems and things like that and the way ideas are implanted in people's minds. Um, that certainly is one of them. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of that. What about, what about another one? Don't you feel like you're in school right now? I'm asking you the question. <laughs> We're on the spot. And, and you didn't, by the way, Chris, you didn't, I'm not doing that thing that teachers did where you answer the question wrong and I just try to affirm you and stroke you a little bit. But, but come on, there's really a right answer here. There's another oh, answer. Man. Come on, you uh, guys, you should know this. I mean, anorexia? Like, yes, uh, eating disorders, yeah. disordered eating. So, like, yeah. and we've put this stuff up on our website, you know, the pro Anna websites that actually become like a church and a community to people. So, there's yeah. this dynamic that's taking place. And that's what Littman seems to be speaking to and what she's discovered. And she's suggesting that we learn more about that now you've got kids who are at this place in their life, you know, childhood and adolescence, which is very confusing. I mean, we're sexual beings. We're gendered beings. What does this mean? And now you've got all these, you know, it used to be that the culture provided a fairly unified voice that said, this is what this is, this is what that is, and we would assimilate into that because I really believe that's where we belonged. Um, and I get different cultures have different definitions of, you know, gender roles and things like that and how gender should function and be expressed. But, you know, that binary of male and female and, you know, basically building our lives around the, the you know, the, the biology that God has given us, you know, the genitalia that God's given us, that's the indicator. You know, and we go back to Genesis, God made us male and female. And now we've got these new options. So I think we, you know, I think this study's worth talking about. I know we need to take a break. But yeah. this, this is where I think we want to go with this and put this out there for youth workers because, and for parents because I think if we buy into this full spectrum, like Riley Cavanaugh in this book, Symptoms of Being Human, she describes to people her situation as not, you know, either a male button or a female button, but rather a dial that's constantly changing and so it's cr crazy because for people like you and I we hear people describe this and no two stories are alike 
And that's where this dial comes in. And it just seems that with every new story, we have a new term now because we have this freedom to self-determine what's actually happening. And so this is not to diminish the fact that there are those cases where there is what has been called gender dysphoria. Uh, you know, those cases are out there. But I think what Lippmann's on to here is what we've seen happen with cutting, what, self-injury, what we, we've seen happen with disordered eating. It's become this idea, this notion, this option that is an option that you can pursue and it's being the 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 possibility the option is being you know blasted out there by the culture well it's a window um i think into the world of an adolescent and i think that even going beyond the issues surrounding transgenderism this study the thing that i found so fascinating and so important is that it is a window it's a window into a lot of the work you and i are constantly doing which is looking at the influence of culture, the the soup that many of our adolescents swim in daily, and how it can influence and impact the way we think, the way we act, the way we behave. And uh, that that influence is only growing. It's not uh, diminishing as our culture continues to have more and more ways to be able to influence, impact, and challenge Maybe what's being taught in the home, maybe what's being uh, uh, taught elsewhere. Uh, and so it's an important thing, I think, not just for youth workers, but for parents to be aware of. And yeah. so uh, I know we'll dive into that uh, a little bit more here after the break. So, yeah. Well, let's take a break. We'll come back and we'll talk more about the study. Stick with us. Are you interested in bringing CPYU to your church, school, or community? A big part of our ministry is the on-site seminars we conduct in dozens of settings every year. CPYU seminars are designed to encourage and educate your audience on a variety of youth culture issues. Every seminar is designed to be informative, practical, and hope-filled. If you want to learn more about our CPYU seminars, available speakers, and the many seminar topics and options in our growing seminar lineup, go to our CPYU homepage at cpyu.org. Click on the seminar option on the menu bar at the top of the page and you can learn more about how to schedule a CPYU speaker and seminar for your parents, youth workers, and educators. Well, you know, from time to time here on Youth Culture Matters, we delve into difficult difficult issues and topics, things that are tough to navigate. Certainly that's what we're talking about today, this whole issue of the transgender phenomena and what's been called now rapid onset gender dysphoria. That's what we're really going to focus here on in this last segment. Jason and Chris and I have been talking about how this has reflected much of the cultural narrative. And when we get to the end of the conversation here, we'll share some thoughts, you know, the best that we can put forward at this point on how to begin to respond to this as parents and youth workers, but we're simply trying to raise awareness at this point of some of what's happening in the culture, particularly this study that's come out in the last few weeks from Brown University, Lisa Lippman's Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria in Adolescents and Young Adults, a study of parental reports. And by the way, before I read a little bit or share some of what's here, and I've asked the guys as well, because this is This is rather involved. We highly recommend that you download it, that you read it, 
carefully, and we're certainly going to miss some things. We're just going to highlight some things. But I've asked the guys that if I miss anything that they think is significant to chime in. So, And, and I think I need to let everybody know as well that Littman has taken a lot of heat on this because this is not politically correct what she's come up with. And it's interesting to me that when we're so intent on, you know, show me the data, show me the data, show me the data, when the data comes out and it's it doesn't fall within the boundaries of the cultural narrative, well, now there's an issue. People are going to push back. So there's pushback here. Have you guys seen any of that, the pushback? I think Brown had her yeah. – what what did they have her do? Like, was there change the wording in something or Brown? I saw some reports. I I I can't quote this directly. In other words, I'm not. Well, you sure. can see some of the responses or potential responses in the comments. There is a, yeah in the link that we will provide. There are comments, uh, and some of those things are are brought up within the mid, uh, within the the conversation of of the report. Yeah, and my understanding is that in the LGBTQ community. There's been a lot of pushback to this. They're not happy about this at all. So, which, which I, you know, I understand. Um, this is rocking the boat in terms of where people have been heading with these things. And I want to remind everybody that as we we go through this, we are not taking this lightly. We understand these are difficult, sensitive, you know, tender issues that many of you who are listening are involved in. You've got kids either in your own family or in your youth group, and but I, but I think this will help you understand a good, significant portion, because I think she is definitely onto something. We've seen this without being able to name it for the last couple of years and more or less expected this, I think, to happen. Yeah. It's not rocket science at all. So please understand we're not trying to be insensitive here. We know that there, there's a lot, a lot that a lot of people have to navigate. So let me read this. This is a little bit from the abstract here. And here's the purpose in the abstract. It says, in online forums, parents have been reporting that their children are experiencing what is described here as rapid onset gender dysphoria, appearing for the first time during puberty or even after its completion. The onset of gender dysphoria seemed to occur in the context of belonging to a peer group where one, multiple, or even all of the friends have become gender dysphoric and, tra- and transgender identified during the same time frame. Parents also report that their children exhibited an increase in social media and internet use prior to disclosure of transgender of a transgender identity. The purpose of this study was to document and explore these observations and describe the resulting presentation of gender dysphoria, which is consistent with existing research literature. So there were 256 parent-completed surveys that met the study criteria. Um, just to, you know, here's the, the profile uh, of folks who were in there. The adolescent and young adult children described were predominantly female sex at birth, about eight, almost 83%, with a mean age of 16.4 years. 40% had expressed a non-heterosexual sexual orientation before identifying as transgender. Many... Uh, about 63% had been diagnosed with at least one mental health disorder or (laughs) neurodevelopmental disability prior to the onset of their gender dysphoria. Um, Yeah, so uh, again, this is, it's really interesting to see this. Now, let me say, we talked about this before the break, 
or maybe we were talking about it during the break, that this group of people is markedly different from those who from a young age expressed some sort of gender dysphoria yeah. that is the kind of thing that's that we see in the DSM-5, which is the manual for this. And I just want to read, because what Lippmann says is you're not seeing this stuff that is in these kids with a rapid, rapid onset gender dysphoria that you're seeing in kids who are diagnosed at a young age who are showing this. So let, can I read this real quick? And then I want you yeah, guys to chime in with some other results from this that you find fascinating. So in the DSM, uh, a person must exhibit a strong and persistent cross-gender identification. And in children, the disturbance is manifested by six or more of the following for at least a six-month duration. This is from the DSM. This is in the mainstream psychological therapeutic community. So I'm just reading you what they have as their standards. And what I'm about to read here, this is not what's in the, the, the folks that Lippmann is seeing by and large. So I'll read these. Uh, first, repeatedly stated desire to be or an insistence that he or she is the other sex. Secondly, in boys, preference for cross-dressing or simulating female attire in girls' insistence on wearing only stereotypical mas masculine clothing, again, in children. Third, strong and persistent preference for cross-sex roles in make-believe play or persistent fantasies of being the other sex. Fourth, a strong rejection of typical toys, games typically played by one's sex. Fifth, an intense desire to participate in the stereotypical games and pastimes of the other sex. What am I up to? Six, strong preference for playmates of the other sex. Seven, a strong dislike of one's sexual anatomy. And then lastly, the eighth, a strong desire for the primary, in other words, penis or vagina, or secondary menstruation, sex characteristics of the other gender. And that's what for years has been used as diagnostic criteria, you know, six, uh, what does it say, six or more of these for at least a six-month duration. That is not the group we're talking about here. No. No, okay. in fact, can, let me just add to that, because within the, the, the report, one of the things they, they do discuss is that it doesn't necessarily, that, that as uh, uh, these adolescent young adults are being exposed to information, they're going to forums found on Reddit and Tumblr uh, and, and actually self-diagnosing based upon things that they're seeing or reading. And let me just read some of those because you've just heard the DSM-5, but let me just give for you how they then self-diagnose and some of the things uh, that are significant and see if this at all relates to what you know and what we've just talked about in the, the second part of our podcast around um, adolescence and, and the very thing that you teach, uh, Walt, but it's this. Signs of indirect uh, gender dysphoria. One, uh, continual difficulty with simply getting through the day. Two, a sense of misalignment, disconnect, or estrangement from um, your emotions. Uh, a feeling of, three, a feeling of just going through life's motions in everyday life as if you're always reading from a script. Four, a seeming, uh, seeming pointlessness into your life and no sense of any real meaning or an ultimate purpose. And five, knowing you're somehow different from everyone else and wishing you could be normal like them. That is what uh, these individuals are going and reading. And adolescents, when they read that, 
I mean, they're in the midst of asking the question, who am I? What is my worldview? Does what I have to say matter? I mean, these are these are questions that they're dealing with and working with. And so these are these are fairly vague and and general questions that pretty much all adolescents are are asking in in many ways. And And they don't really have anything to do with gender. But as they come across certain forums and places online and when other people, their peers talk about this, all of a sudden gender uh, identity becomes one of the ways in which they try to answer some of these questions yeah. uh, among this group of rapid onset gender dysphoria uh, adolescents. Most definitely. And, and this is where the peer group has extended way beyond flesh and blood. It went, and, you know, like when you're ostracized, you're disenfranchised, you're you're out of the peer group in your school, which is what we read in this book, you know, Symptoms of Being Human. This is Riley Cavanaugh's story. She doesn't have a place to belong. She is drawn to those who are most like her, desiring to fit in, don't know where they belong. And these folks start to develop an identity around shared hurt, shared brokenness, shared ostracism, and they're drawn to each other. And what I couldn't help thinking about when I was reading the study and also when I was reading the book, Symptoms of Being Human, was what we knew 30 years ago about, for example, the uh, subculture known as the heavy metal subculture, which when I was doing youth ministry in the 80s was a big subculture. These were kids who had nowhere to belong, and they gravitated towards each other. They adopted dress. They adopted language. They adopted music. They adopted all these markers that became commonly held, you know, traits, commonly held, uh, you know, types of things that put them in that group and gave them a place to belong. They had their own rules. They had their own borders. They had their own boundaries. And that's who they were. were. And what did the rest of the popular kids call them? You know, freaks, you know, outcasts. You're weird. You're odd. You don't belong. You don't fit in. But yet they did find a place to fit in there. And so when you study you know, these these subcultures, these youth subcultures, you see that this rides in that same tread, you know, that yeah. we've seen for so many years there. Yeah. I, I do think it's important that we also, especially as individuals that are working with youth or um, are caring for youth as a parent, uh, that there is something unique to this generation um, as well uh, with the rapid uh, acceptance of uh, the LGBTIA uh, identity, that there, uh, there is a framework at play that does not see it as uh, uh, anything other than a part of how they've been made. And so we have to couple this with a lot of the data that we're also seeing come out about Generation Z. And, and I think that it then goes to, like, well, it has us go to the very aspect, of, which I know we're moving to, of how do we respond to this? Yeah. What do we do? How do we engage? I think those are important questions. Well, you know, you're talking here, Jason, about a cultural soup, a cultural soil. Yes. I would even say in the church a theological soup and soil that really is, the constitution of it is such that it really encourages this kind of thinking, these kinds of beliefs, and the resulting behaviors. And this is where I really believe as cultural, culture watchers, cultural critics, we need to stand back 
and look through the lens, a corrective lens of a biblical world and life view and see, you know, how this works itself out. I, but Chris, was there anything from the study that you thought of that, you know, maybe, I, I know we are just glossing over this, but, you know, the whole, the whole idea of we've talked about social contagion, mm-hmm. uh, pure contagion, it's just spread like wildfire. Uh, yeah, one of the things I think in it, I, I think this was true uh, with the social contagion that we talked about in those other areas uh, as well with with self-mutilation and stuff, is that if they intentionally or unintentionally stumble across these communities, they're very, they're, they're obviously a very supportive and uncritical um, of, uh, of, of transgenderism. So, um, not uh, to the point where they actually one of the things that was mentioned in the study is that community will actually help and encourage students who might not fit those uh gsm criteria or dsm criteria um they'll help them figure out how to facilitate the proper story or tell lies um in order that uh they receive the treatment that they're that uh, that they're looking for. I don't know if I heard you right there because did you, did Jason, did he say unsupportive? Actually, in the beginning, maybe Un, you no, they're supportive it. and uncritical. Oh, un- supportive and uncritical. That's what you wanted to see. I think you said unsupportive. So, um, if I, I may have misheard you there, but I want to be sure I just sure. clarify Absolutely. if that's sure. the way that's what you said. Because uh, I know we're talking about difficult things here, man. I'm trying to choose my, words, my carefully words carefully so that yeah. I so that I say things correctly and communicate things correctly. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, um, but I think that's important for parents yeah. to know that oh, yeah. uh, that you know um, th- there's there's instructions out there yeah. in, amongst the the community to to help them sort of learn how to navigate. Like, well, maybe you don't fit the the critical or the the clinical symptoms, but here's uh, here's some steps you can do to to get you know doctors and and others on board to to help yeah. you transition. Well, let me. Let me before we get into some responses here, because we need to do that. And I know it seems like we're being totally unfair here in terms of the length of time we're spending to talk about this. But we have limited time. And I I do want to encourage people to to go online on our website, cpyu.org, find this podcast page and read what we've linked to, uh, especially this study. But let me let me offer something here that. goes on the tales of what you guys have said. I think we have created a cultural climate where when moms and dads remove themselves by choice or circumstance from having a deep influence on young people, when Christian parents shirk their responsibility to not only nurture themselves but nurture their children in the faith and see that as their primary and most pressing responsibility— when the institutions that typically have presented in past years a unified voice of what I would call clearly truth and you know uh, behavioral and belief borders and boundaries, uh, when, when we disagree, when they disagree now and all, are all over the place, and I'm speaking here of the church, the family, uh, education, the media, whatever those things are, when, when all that happens, now kids— they're still asking the questions. But when we don't offer a voice that gives a clear, truthful answer, they're going to go somewhere else to find the answer. And when we remove ourselves as 
the people and institutions that typically have taken the responsibility given to us by God to give the answer, they will go somewhere else for the answer. And the most compelling answers, the most pervasive answers are out there in the media. And I think this study would indicate as well that not only are the answers there, but the answers are there, I think, as you guys have said, in communities that are more than happy and more than willing to be welcoming and accepting. Find your place here. And with that, I want to read, I thought this was interesting. Uh, These were some case summaries that Lippmann listed in the study. The following case summaries were selected to illustrate peer trauma and psychiatric contexts that might indicate more complicated clinical pictures. Um, Okay, Uh, here you go. I'm going to read these, all right, like three lines each. Here's first case. A 12-year-old female was bullied, natal female was bullied specifically for going through early puberty, and the responding parent wrote, I quote, as a result, she said she felt fat and hated her breasts, unquote. She learned online that hating your breasts is a sign of being transgender. See, there's a question, and she goes online to find and answer the question rather than having a conversation with someone who could guide her through this. She edited her diary by crossing out existing text and writing a new text to make it appear that she has always felt that she is transgender. Here's another one. 14-year-old natal female and three of her natal female friends were taking group lessons together with a very popular coach. The coach came out as transgender, and with one year, all four students announced they were also transgender. Within Uh, one year. Within a year, yeah. A natal female was traumatized by a rape when she was 16 years of age. Before the rape, she was described as a happy girl. After the rape, she became withdrawn and fearful. Several months after the rape, she announced she was transgender and told her parents that she needed to transition. So there's trauma there. Uh, Here you go. I'll read this last one. A 14-year-old natal female and three of her natal female friends are part of a larger friend group that spends much of their time talking about gender and sexuality. And by the way, I mean, didn't our friends do that? I mean, we talked about those things when we were teenagers. The three natal female friends all announced they were trans boys and chose similar masculine names. After spending time with these three friends, the 14-year-old natal female announced that she also was a trans boy. So you're seeing these, and the research is pointing to this statistically, that these kids are... They're hearing about this. They're seeing it as an option. It is something they never would have considered if the Internet, social media, and uh, an Internet-immersed group of real flesh-and-blood friends hadn't embarked on. And, again, this is they would not have considered this. And, again, this is what we've talked about in the past. But this is a community that's ex- accepting them, and they're finding their yeah. I- identity and belonging in this group. and. And yes. if that's the first place that they found that, they're attracted to it. Yes. So now let us transition, no pun intended here, let's us transition into some responses because, and our responses, folks, you're going to realize this, they're not an end-all, cure-all, but I think there are some borders and boundaries, some frames within which we can operate as parents and youth workers that are helpful, some postures we need to assume. So... Let's talk about that. Jason, Chris, what kinds of things can you come up with? I've been making a list here as we're chatting, and hopefully our folks who are listening will find this helpful. 
I, I think that one of the things I, I want to start even before we dive into that is just the simple fact that this is one study, 256 parents. This isn't as widespread as we could make it sound. So we want to be careful with it saying like this is a huge issue. It, it is an issue. Yeah. And, and by the way, that's culture. one of her. That's one of Lippman's recommendations yes. that more research yes. is needed. So as a Most good definitely. researcher, so, she said that I, I say that just for this conversation, that's always really important. That's, that's why we encourage you, our listener, to be able to make sure you're going and, and reading. I, I, I will say this. Uh, the very first thing that I would say is we've just got to do a really good job in the midst of our uh, youth ministries and in our own home of building a solid biblical foundation. Of I always say we don't want to bring out Scripture when we're trying to correct, correct behavior. Scripture needs to be a part of our daily life. It needs to be a part of how our family engages the, the things and, and, and just reality that it's something that has an influence on us from uh, from an early age to a late age that that uh, it's being modeled by parents that's that that uh, children are learning as they grow and become adolescents that there is something important to the model that we see placed before us in scripture and I think that that actually helps in the midst of this conversation because so often what we can do is we want to respond quickly because we see something happening and we say well scripture says this well if we've not ever used scripture as a guide if we, we've not had a biblical worldview in our home or in our youth ministry which i'm sure we do i would hope we do um if it hasn't been something that's been discussed it's a really difficult thing to then just bring it in right there in the midst of that and so we have to be aware that this is what's happening in our culture but the way that we engage this is hopefully we've already been engaging in a biblical foundation around sex and sexuality we're we're building the entirety of the story that we find uh in the bible boy i would echo that just you know one of the words that i wrote down here uh, two words a phrase don't diminish don't diminish the necessity of your own the nurturing of your own faith and what flows out of that and that is the nurture of your children and we're not just talking here about parents who are primarily responsible for this, but youth workers. And the reality is for you youth workers, there are so many distractions right now that you can get wrapped up in curating yourself, curating your youth room, doing this, doing that. Look, it's relationship. Relationship trumps everything. And you have to foster your relationship with the Lord and then use your relationship with those students to speak into their, into their lives. And Again, tip the balance of the scale of how you spend your time towards Christian nurture, your own and the nurture of your kids. So, and, and by the way, for some of your students, in fact, some of your students who are most prone to what we're talking about here in terms of a social contagion, look, peer contagion, those students maybe don't have a mom and dad who's connected, and it's reasonable to assume that they are not going to nurture their children in the faith because maybe they're not even people of faith. And that's where you need to step in and, and realize that you play a very important role here. So as Jason said, speak the truth. Um, yeah, don't diminish that. Yeah, what else do you have, Jason? I, I've got some more things written down here, but go ahead. Well, I, I will follow that up with just saying that sometimes we can find ourselves in the midst of having not built that foundation. And so I think our, our response can sometimes be uh, to, to respond out of anger or to quickly point out the sin. And I actually think we need to be careful in doing that. Like, I think that what we need to be able to do is come before and, and 
show incredible grace that a lot of times what what is happening in the midst of this is someone is wanting to be known and loved and understood yeah and i think that that we have to model that i i i'm i'm often uh aware of how jesus humbled himself whenever he engaged sexual sin uh oftentimes he would humble himself before truth was ever revealed that he would uh posture would be one where uh, it was it was almost lower than the individual. It was one that recognized and saw the other individual as first and foremost someone who was created in the image of God, and and uh, in many ways embraced that individual, uh, and that then allowed for truth to be revealed. And yeah. and I'll say one other thing with regards to this. Sometimes even after someone comes to know the Lord and we're engaging in a lot of these things, we we want for quick change to occur. We think it's going to happen right away. Uh, but I think that sometimes we can get in the way of the work of the Holy Spirit. And we just got to trust that the Holy Spirit is real, active, and uh, that when someone comes to know uh, Jesus, that they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will will do a marvelous work in someone's life. And so we can't underestimate that. And so we, we I, I think we have to balance uh, expectations sometimes um, and not try to physically or emotionally change the behavior, but but prayerfully ask for that behavior or that uh, identity to be changed, that it's an identity in Christ. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. And, you know, I heard you go down this road a bit, and I want to stress this, that people who struggle with this, maybe in a confused way, maybe in a way that's been a bit more long-term, they are not less than human. They are human beings, as you said, made in the image of God. And part of what we need to know about our own culture is most of us who are adults have been raised in a world where people who are different from us or who, who struggle with some of these things, or even at the level of, of race, you know, these people are people who are different are somehow less than human. We, that's been part of the cultural DNA that we've grown up with. We may not have had parents teach us that or a church that's taught us that. Maybe we have, I don't know, in some cases. But we are inhabiting and we have grown up in a culture where that attitude of these people who are different are somehow less than, that's been prevalent. And and I know I have to push through that, you know. And and sometimes the the way that we can see that is the way that our humor works itself out. Yeah. You know, if we're making jokes and we're, we're you know, we're gesturing about about folks like this. So, yeah, I, I would say that. And and don't diminish the struggle. I, I like what you said there. You know, I think a Nicholas Black, our friend at Harvest USA, who wrote an article uh, that we've included here before on, you know, my kids looked at porn. Now what? You know, what do I do? And Nicholas is immediately trying to get us to not overreact and understand something more is going on here. Let's get at that something more, and let's not forfeit our opportunity to be people who influence by shaming and demeaning, and let's love and let's understand and let's reach out with grace and communicate truth. And so you hit on that. I I just want to affirm that because that is a posture we need to have. Here's another one I have. Um, don't diminish the power of the body of Christ, the fuller body of Christ. And this is where the church really needs to step up. We've had a lot of chatter, a lot of talk in our youth ministry world over the last few years, thanks to people like our friend Chap Clark about the power of mentors and, you know, that five-to-one 
his whole book on adoptive youth ministry. He has a new one out on the adoptive church now. I think Chap has waved that flag well for so many of us that we need to realize, look, okay, I've raised my kids, but you know what? My responsibility's not done. There's some kids over there in that hallway, and I don't know them. I'm going to go over and meet them and have a conversation with them. And you know, start to to build those relationships. I think that's an important thing as well. So, and then positive peer influence. You know, this is peer influence, and the same thing can happen with the gospel. That to be with others who have embraced the gospel and been transformed by the gospel can be transformative in the lives of the kids that we know and love. And so, to build that kind of of, of peer group. What else? That's good. Yeah, anything else? I know we're winding down here, but I think this is a great conversation. I, you know, I'm, I, I look at a study like this, and I, I just think it reinforces um, our need to be aware, uh, uh, culturally aware. You know, in recent years, I've tried to move away from being culturally relevant um, because so often that means we're changing to be a part of the culture. I, I actually think that we need to be aware because I think that as we read studies like this, it, what it reminds me most of all is that we can easily be influenced by what is happening around us. And not just the students we work with or our own kids, but me, Jason, can be influenced. And so I think that we just take uh, a study like this and we just need to make sure that uh, we are recognizing the power of the soup that we live in and its influence. and. That, uh, and continually asking ourselves and, and modeling this to our students and to our children uh, how, uh, how, and asking the question, how is the culture influencing us? And looking at some of the many things and, and more importantly, asking how is the gospel shaping me? How, how is my identity in Christ being formed? And that even goes back to the dynamic of uh, the body of Christ and its influence in our lives and how it's playing out. Yeah, yeah. Any final thoughts, anybody, as we as we end? I would just echo what you guys have said. Yeah, yeah. I don't have anything really other than just to say, um, yeah, build uh, w- build that foundation of of biblical sexuality and gender and identity at a young age, so that uh, when they're adolescents and they are asking these questions and they stumble across answers online, um, they have a biblical foundation from which to compare yeah. the answers that they're finding online, they can compare those answers with the foundation from Scripture that, that has been instilled in them. Yeah. You know, this may not—I I know I get pushback on this, and, and I have—I I really believe that as people in ministry, we need to unapologetically take this stand and this stance, and that is that when we talk about matters of sexuality and gender, and Jason, you and I do this all the time, but I know we're getting some pushback. We need to go back to the beginning. We need to go back to the creator. We need to go back to the creation narrative. We need to go back to the garden where God's intent, God's order, and God's design is is exhibited perfectly. And Jason, I love how you've always said, you know, God's big yes for sexuality. You know, how do you say that? Declares it. God declares it as good. I love listening to you tell that to kids because you're just so eager to communicate the goodness of that. We have for too long diminished sex and sexuality, not talked about it. As a result, I think 
much of what the world, the flesh, and the devil would love to have us believe about sex, sexuality, and gender has advanced because we haven't understood and proclaimed the gospel. And Genesis 1 and 2 clearly talk about God's sexual shalom, what he intends for us, and the joy and the beauty of that, what it means to flourish as a human being, and that God made us male and female. I understand sin, I understand brokenness, and I understand the confusion that comes for many from that. Brokenness exhibits itself in many ways in all of us, and for some more so than others with the gender question. Uh, But I think now, you know, we need, and this study here is saying it, what has been um, in many ways a legitimate struggle for many people is now becoming an option. And what we need to do is teach the truth. So thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, again, for folks who are listening, not an end-all, be-all. We want to be sensitive. We want to hear the stories. But we also know the gospel story is, is the gospel is transformative. And, and so we, we point to that. So, well, good. Chris, we gave you a lot sure. to post. We're going to give you some more things. I think when we go offline, I'm thinking of some books that could be helpful. And as always, we'll put them all on the page. Yeah. So go to cpyu.org, right? And then find, uh, if you click on the, uh, this, this podcast, which do we know what episode this is? Uh, this will be episode number 68. Number 68. Uh, that's the number of my football jersey. Um, episode number 68. Whenever I hear 68, that's what I think of. By the way, I'm reading books on 1968 right now, so that's fascinating, too. I don't know why it's all, it all, it's all coming together, right? Um, but go to the podcast page, and you'll find all this. We'll recommend some books, some helps, websites, and other things like that. And So educate yourselves on this. Jason, thanks. Yeah, thanks. We'll see you on the next podcast. Chris, I just want to get, you know, we gave a shout out at the beginning to Eric Christensen. I got to give a shout out to Chris. Chris keeps the, the, the well-oiled machine. Would you call it a well-oiled machine? (laughs) (laughs) Chris keeps the machine oiled, um, and keeps us moving here and produces this and engineers all this and navigates all this. So thank you, Chris, for doing that. Yes. Thank you. My pleasure. So next time. Oh, you're working at Chick-fil-A now, huh? Uh, my. <laughs> until the next time, we'll, uh, we'll see you and come back and visit us again on Youth Culture Matters. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.